Our purpose statement as a church is to equip people to pursue Christ passionately to impact their culture. So if you take it apart, if you parse that little statement, so we're equipping men and women and boys and girls to pursue Christ passionately, it's cognitive and it's emotive, to impact the culture. And to impact the culture, you need to know the culture. And as you know the culture, we speak with grace and dignity and brokenness. We speak with brokenness because nobody has it all together. We speak with brokenness because we're all sinners and we're clay pots. We speak with brokenness because we all have our stuff, but we speak. And because God is a speaking God and he's communicated to us in his scripture to not speak with brokenness and grace and dignity is high treason to King Jesus. So we speak. We speak of the king who reigns in glorious Trinitarian splendor. Now this week something happened. I'm going to ramp up to get to Joshua 23. This week, a surgically damaged man appeared on the cover of Vanity Fair. And the applause is mandatory in certain circles. And yet, it's a great sadness to my own heart. It's a great sadness because God is a creative, glorious God who makes us male and female in his image. And yet this man says he's always been a woman, but he's been in a man's body. Enormously gifted, talented, great athlete, handsome man that he is. So we serve a creator God named Abba Father who makes us male and female. Now, I haven't announced this, but I'm going to be a granddaddy. Our, uh, my daughter-in-law, Chelsea Jean Van Horn Brown, is pregnant. We'll have a baby, Zach and Chelsea, in late September, and I am thrilled. Uh, the only downside to being a granddaddy is you realize you're married to a grandmama. So, but I, I have prayed for uh, my grandchildren for years, and once I found out that we we're going to have a grandchild, I made a commitment to pray for baby Brown every day of my life until God takes me to heaven. And I, I love to go to Psalm 139. Let me just read a few verses from Psalm 139. It's a celebration of God's goodness. David says, Oh Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Even before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You hear me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. David says, Lord, you've searched me and know me. You know, when I sit down and rise up, you know my pads. You know, before a word is on my tongue, before it's formed in my brain to speak on my tongue. He said, it's unbelievable, God, who you are. You hear me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. And then he says, in absolute bold over wonder, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain it. Or as we would say, I can't wrap my brain around it. And then later in the psalm, he says this. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. Oh, Lord. And my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret 
intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. And in your book were written every one of them, the days that you formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. He says, God, you know me. You know my life. You know my thoughts. You know my days. I was knitted together delicately and beautifully and wonderfully in my mother's womb. I thank you. Fearfully and wonderfully made. So we, we, we rejoice in that. It's a joy to, to, to say God is a great creator, God, Abba, Father, reigning Savior, anointing Spirit who works in us. As compared to people who are well-meaning people who say that life is nothing more than an impersonal plus time plus chance mistake. It's a beautiful mistake, but it's a mistake. We say, no, 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 you're knitted together. You study the making of a baby and what happens at age six weeks and 12 weeks and three months and four months, and you just go, wow. It gives you confidence. And that's why the Baptist Faith and Message says this. Written in 2000, man is a special creation of God made in his own image. He created them male and female as the crowning work of his creation. You are made in the image of God, male and female. You're the crowning work of God's creation. Therefore, every man possesses dignity and is worthy of respect and Christian love. Every man, every woman, every child, every person. And then it says this, gender, the gift of gender is thus part of the goodness of God's creation. Now, this was written in 2000, adopted in Orlando, Florida. And I, I almost called a couple of the people I know who helped write this and say, when you were crafting this in 1998, 1999, and then 2000, did, did you foresee where we are in 2015 regarding this transgender stuff? Did, did you see that? I, I guarantee you they say we had no idea. We were just affirming the beauty of creation. But, but that, that is where we are. A great creator, God, who made the heavens and the earth and says man is the crowning work of God's creation versus somebody who says man is the colossal mistake of some force that we can't determine and man is the arbiter. Man is the center, not God. Now, people have asked me many times in the last few weeks, how did we get here so fast? And I, let me just read the Bible. The Bible has the answer. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and following, a passage that we will think about much in the coming years, it says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They push it down. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal purpose, and power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And what do you mean? What he says that is it is that when people look at how our planet just tilts this much one season and this much in the next how the tides come in and out, how the galaxies put together, how the, 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 a baby's formed, how the seasons come and go. There's the imprint of majestic creatorship from Abba Father everywhere. They see it. And he says they're without excuse. For although they knew God, the creator, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile 
in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up. So what, what Paul is saying is he, he says when people see this, they know it, but they suppress the truth and they say, I'm the center of the universe, and, and, and they remove God's guardrails in their lives and they go into futile thinking and futile behavior and they go from bad to worse. And, and that's how you get here. You see, the Bible teaches that all people have an intuitive knowledge of right and wrong. Listen to Romans 2.14. Read a little book called the Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis. It's only 70 pages, but it's dynamite. Romans 2.14 says this. For when Gentiles, or non-believers, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. And what he's saying there is that, is that people do by nature things they that are written on their hearts. All cultures everywhere, we say, had the second table of the Ten Commandments etched on their hearts. For example, you study human society. Across the board, human society says, basically, honor your father and your mother. They say, don't murder. There's no culture that honors people that slip up and knife people in the back and kill them. They say, don't commit adultery. They teach don't steal. They teach don't bear false witness or lie. They teach don't covet. If you're at a dinner party and there's a man sitting there and he says, you know, there's a woman down the road married to John and she is a good looking woman and I want her. And I thought of a plan to seduce her and win her affection and get her into my bed. What would you do? You'd go away in disgust and call John and say, beware of this horrendous, lecherous man. Because, you know, it's wrong. We're sitting there and somebody says, you know, there's a plot of land, oceanfront property that's been in a family for years. It's three acres. I want it. I want to build a house there. I've got the money. And it's part of a family property. But I've hired an attorney who's a shyster, who is a snake oil salesman, and we're in cahoots to get that piece of land. What would you do? You'd leave in disgust and calm and say, be careful. Be careful. Because you know these things are wrong. These things are etched upon our hearts. But when we continually say there is no God, and we push it down, and we push it down, we remove the guardrails. You see, we're, to, we're in high in the mountains, and there's a 3,000-foot precipice for all the culture. And, and, and there, there are guardrails placed there by God. It's called the doctrine of common grace. And, and, and when we affirm those things that are written in our hearts, it gives us protection because we're going to blow a, a tire or, or we're going to have brakes to give out. And so you hit the bumpers, the guardrail, and they knock you back in the road. But when you deny God and you deny his existence, you became futile in your thinking and your foolish heart is darkened and the guardrails are gone. And so a culture can unravel very quickly. The British have a proverb that goes like this. It takes three generations to raise a gentleman. It's true. It takes many generations, the Bible says. But conversely, things can go, go apart very quickly. Let me give you an example. Two years after high school, college graduation, I had the privilege of living in Singapore in Southeast Asia, coaching basketball, doing youth work, and I fell in love. 
in that order. And Singapore is a beautiful nation of 85% Chinese, 15% Malay and Indian, which makes it an incredible, wonderful place as far as ethnicity and ethnic foods. So, but I was, even as a young man, I was just astounded at the, the grace and the dignity that Chinese people extend to their elders. If you study Chinese history, there's a deep, deep regard for the elderly. They're, they're honored. Now, maybe not so much now because the one-child policy in China is leading to demographic suicide as far as economics, but that's another point altogether. But as I studied Chinese history in the 20th century, and I read about Mao Zedong, who came to power. And Mao Zedong, by the way, was the gold medal winner of, of murdering people in the 20th century. Stalin won the silver medal and Hitler the bronze medal. Pol Pot, Idi Amin, honorable mention. But this guy was really murdered millions and millions and millions of people. But in 1966, he instituted something called the Great Proletariat Cultural Revolution. We call it the Cultural Revolution. It was about 10 years in length, 66 to 76. But what he did is he, he, he uh, wanted to wipe out every vestige, every cent of <clears throat> entrepreneurial thinking and anti-communist thinking, every whiff of it. And, and so they had young children that trained in the Red Garden. They say, we want you to turn in your parents and your grandparents. And they did. They turned in their parents, and their parents were publicly mocked, beaten, and sometimes executed because they were anti-communist. And, and, and really, people said, we can't believe that the Chinese youth turn on their parents in a culture that, that, that elevates, because of Confucianism, elevates a deep regard for the elderly. It can happen very quickly. And so I just say, church, we need to be graciously prophetic, and we need to speak the truth with love and brokenness and kindness, but we must speak the truth because not to speak the truth is, is, is really treason against King Jesus. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. I've been reading through Titus, thinking about Titus the last few weeks, and this is a few verses in Titus. This, all these verses are talking about good, and the word for good in the Greek means beautiful, wholesome, harmonious, radiant. Listen. Chapter 2, verse 7 talks about older people training younger people. And it says, show yourself in all respects as an older person to be a model of good works, beautiful works, radiant works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech. Chapter 2, verse 10, in the marketplace, it says, live in such a fashion. You don't pilfer, but you show all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, live in such a way in the marketplace with integrity and resolve that you make the gospel beautiful by the way you live. Chapter 2, verse 14. He has redeemed us to making us a people who are zealous for good works, radiant, beautiful works. Chapter 3 and verse 8. This is a saying that is trustworthy, and I want you to, to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Chapter 3, verse 14 says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help people in urgent need and to not be unfruitful. So, so practice good, be good, teach good, help those in need. Let your light shine. And, and that's what we're called to do, to speak with brokenness and dignity and love. Now, 
I grew up in Mayberry RFD, if you've ever watched this show, a town of 1,200. In fact, when I was an eighth grader, we moved to a house, and I could see Mount Pilot from my front yard. So I grew up in Mayberry. Uh, we, with all the characters, we, every small town, if you're raised in a small town, has your Otis, your Gomer, your Goober, and your Aunt B. We all did, and we, they, they, they do. And I am incredibly indebted to those dear people who raised me. And yet, in my small town of 1,200, there was a place of iniquity and darkness, a sinister den called the Pool Hall. And from the time I was able to comprehend words, my mother told me, don't ever go to the Pool Hall. It is a sinister place of where men hang out and do play a game and it is uh, they, 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 they smoke filled. Well, every room in North Carolina in the 60s was smoke filled. <laughs> even the church fellowship halls were smoke filled. And she said there's even the rumor that they drink alcohol in these places. And it is a place you should avoid and don't go to the pool hall. And years later, years later, I remember hearing a little musical called Music Man. And you know the story. The guy says, right here in River City, there's trouble with a capital T, and that rhymes with P, and that stands for a pool right here in River City. So we had this severe place of degradation that I should never go to. But we also had churches on every corner, churches, where respectable people went, where socially embraced people went, and not the socially marginalized. If you want to be socially marginalized in my city, then you don't go to church, and if you did anything like mow the grass on Sunday, you might as well just leave town. <laughs> but I say with great sadness that I never heard, in my Baptist church, I never heard the Bible preached. I never heard people stand up and say, Jesus Christ has changed me. I never heard people say that I have learned how to love people of a different ethnic background because I'm walking in the gospel of redeeming grace. I never heard that. I never heard people say that Christ has taught me how to live as a businessman in a world that's very difficult because he's Lord of my life. I never, I never heard that. And so my point is you can get to hell just as quickly by going to pool hall as going to churches where Jesus had preached. Good behavior, church. We were so conservative that our county voted for Barry Goldwater in 1964. We were one of 15 counties in America that voted for Barry Goldwater. In your heart, you know he's right. Remember that? And so really, I think the church of Mayberry RFD is, is dead, and I say good. It's exhilarating because the church is called to be the church today. We used to be socially marginalized if you didn't go to church. Now there are times when you're going to be socially marginalized if you do go to church or speak the truth. It's going to be interesting. You know, years ago, we taught, some of us talk, took evangelism, a course called Evangelism Explosion, and this is the way the questions, one of the first questions, if you were to die today and stand before a holy God, what should you or would you say to get into heaven? And the vast majority of people would say, well, I've tried to live good. You're an American. That's what you say. You don't have any self-suspectability. You're just filled with assurance. And you say, well, I appreciate your answer, but the Bible says that 
All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. So, so good works, big gap between the holy God and, and man. Man made in the image of God, big gap. And then you say, but the Bible does give a remedy. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And it's nothing you do, it's the work of God, not of man, so that no man can boast. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, who left Trinitarian glory and became a man, and died on the cross as our substitute, and rose victorious over death. Jesus says, but as many as received him become sons of God. So, so they say, oh, oh yeah, I believe that too. You go, really? It just made it very difficult to share the gospel. Today, people say, ah, I don't buy that. I don't think so. Your definition of God is different than mine. Well, what about the empty tomb? Well, let's think about it. So to me, it's much more exciting to talk to people today than 30 years ago, is what I'm saying, because you don't assume things anymore. So just teach it, brothers and sisters. Just, just lay it out. And so I come to the sermon now. Uh, I'll do this very quickly. Uh, Joshua. Last week I talked about his instructions going into the promised land. Faithfulness fulfilled today. Fulfilled. Joshua, we've talked about forever faithful. We've talked about this uh, statement that biblical clarity leads to unity of thought in the body which leads to works of action in the culture. Forever faithful. Joshua is forever faithful personified. Joshua's a man. Joshua, young man, goes with Moses up to Mount Sinai. He steps, step, stops halfway. Moses up the other 40 days, comes down. Joshua meets him. They're coming down the mountain. And the children of Israel have made a golden calf. And they're worshiping the golden calf. And they're doing sexual excessive things at the golden calf. And Joshua, as they get close to the camp, says, Moses, is that the sound of battle I hear? And Moses, carrying the two tables of the Ten Commandments, with his heart breaking, says, I wish it were the sound of battle. It's the sound of singing. It's the sound of sexual exploitation, I hear. And Moses gets there, and his heart's broken. He throws the tablets down, and then he says, who's on the Lord's side? And the tribe of Levi stands up, and they go through the camp, and they kill 3,000 people who led in this excessive, idolatrous, God-dishonoring, exploitive worship. Joshua's with Moses. Joshua's in a battle one day, and he's fighting away. He's a general, and he looks up, and when Moses' hands are lifted high, they're winning. When they're dropped because of fatigue, they're losing, and he realizes the battle belongs to God. Joshua's one of 12 men chosen to go into the promised land to spy out the promised land. And so he and 11 other cohorts go into the promised land and they come back. And Joshua and a buddy stand up and say, man, the fruit's huge. The cities are big, but no big deal. God's on our side. He's Jehovah. He's king. Let's go get him. And the 10 of the guys stand up and said, you know, we're grasshoppers compared to those guys. We can't do anything. And the children of Israel believed the ten and not the two. And they wandered around for 40 years. And today in this church, I love the name Joshua. I love the name Caleb. They're the two guys that gave the minority report. The other ten are never named anywhere in our culture. 
Joshua was a faithful man. He saw the Jordan River part, as we saw last week. He went in, he conquered the promised land. And we come to chapter 23, and Joshua calls the leaders of Israel to his council, and he says, verse 2, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God Jehovah has done to you all of, through all of these nations for your sake. It is the Lord your God who's fought for you. And don't you forget it. He says later, verse 14, And now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one, one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. And so I, I read this and I say, well, no, the, the, the key to living well from the lips of Joshua is to understand, first of all, the brevity of life. Joshua says, I'm getting ready to go the way of all the earth. He's 110. He's 110. He's getting ready to die. But he says, life is brief. Live with a sense of calling. I thought this was amusing. This fish, goldfish in the vase that's dripping. That's us. The water's dripping out. None's coming in. Life is short. Interesting, I've been reading the Puritans more and more lately, the last few years, and the Puritans, 1560 to 1660, there was the apogee of their success. And also the Book of Common Prayer says, Lord, do not let me die unexpectedly. Let me know, short illness, not long, so I can tie things up and make sure that everything is as it should be. In other words, live with the end in view. Joshua says, Joshua says, live with the end in view. Life is a vapor. These seniors standing up here, 18, and we'll come up to them and say, I remember when we dedicated you and you were a little baby. And they go, oh, good grief, here we go again. These old people drive me crazy. Let me tell you something. Life is a vapor. It's a vapor. Boom. Boom. I've been boxing a lot of boxes lately. Came across my senior high school annual. Yeah. <laughs> Basketball picture. First of all, we should have been arrested for the shorts we wore back then. They were really indecent. Standing there, you know, I wasn't very good in basketball, but I could strike a pose. As yesterday. So you, you live with the understanding that life is a vapor. There's a woman named Ann Cousins. I don't know much about her. She's married to a pastor. She wrote a phenomenal hymn called The, the Sands of Time Are Sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for. The fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark has been the midnight, but day spring is at hand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. One more stanza. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The ocean of earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There too in ocean fullness his mercy doth expand, for glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. I love what she says. She says, you know, the ocean of earth I've tasted, and it's good. I've had great meals. I've had tender friendships. I've seen beautiful vistas, but, but, but I've tasted it, but more deep I'll drink in heaven. 
Just drink. I've tasted, I'll drink. The most wonderful, glorious, enchanting, embracive friendship now in heaven will be as nothing. The most glorious meal now in heaven will be nothing. Alpine views here, heaven, more glorious. We're going to talk about a bucket list. It's great to have bucket lists. But you're going to have an eternity to work on a bucket list. And it's glorious. And, and, and that's what Josh was saying here. I'm about to go the way of the earth, all the earth, and God is faithful. I was thinking of the prayer that Paul has for the church at Colossae, where he, he writes of them, verse 3 of chapter 1, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You want to be more loving, have more faith than glory in the coming heaven and the Trinitarian splendor of God. And cousin says in another Stan says, the king therein, his beauty without a veil is seen. Wow. So Joshua, forever faithful, he sees the glory of God. He lives on the promises of God. He understands the brevity of life, and he goes forward by faith. I love Joshua. He says in chapter 24, serve those gods if you want to. Serve the gods of the river. It leads to death and destruction and hell. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve Jehovah. I love Joshua. That's the way he lived.